The reading this morning comes from the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke, chapter 6, verses 17 to 26. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Sidon and Tyre. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were touched with unclean spirits were cured, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. For the gospel of the Lord praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that flow from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are listening to uh, Bruno's dulcet tones, uh, which we've missed uh, the last few weeks, so it's great to have those back, and you're hearing that reading and you're thinking to yourself, those words found, sound a little familiar, but they don't seem to be quite as I remember them sound a little bit different. You might be confusing the very well-known Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel with the much less well-known, it's less famous little brother, the Sermon on the Plain, uh, which we hear this morning from Luke chapter 6. While there are many similarities with these two passages, there are some significant differences. Some sceptics like uh, to go searching for the differences in the accounts between the Gospels. And when they find them, and there are plenty of them, they point to them and say, yeah, look at that, it proves the unreliability of the Bible. And it proves uh, my doubt in its historicity and its truth. Well, I think that there are other explanations um, that, that I actually uh, think uh, uh, that add to 
the rigorous nature of the Bible's truth and the diverse nature of the Bible's truth too. News reporters uh, will report differently depending on the view of their news organisation. They'll report differently depending on the reporter's individual approach or location or the demographic uh, of their intended audience. I have noticed in the last eight years that you get a very different news report in Queensland the morning after State of Origin than you do in New South Wales. I'm, I'm quite sad that in the eight years I've been listening to those reports, um, they haven't always been good news. Um, and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John each have a different perspective, a different intention and a different audience, which does account for some of the differences that we do find across the four Gospels. But with passages like the Sermons on the Mount and the Plain, I wonder if it's something different at work. I suspect it's the same idea presented at different times in slightly different ways in order to get the main point across. You may or you may not be aware um, that we are about to launch into election mode in Australia. Everybody's excited, right? Yay, yay. We're going to get ourselves ready to hear the differing political parties giving us their main points in different ways over and over and over again. I've heard a number of well-known preachers at conferences over the years only to get halfway through their message and think to myself, I think I've read that in their book or I've seen that in their DVD. And actually my sermon uh, in this service is a bit different to the sermon I preached at 7.30. Some things are worth repeating. But when Jesus repeats things, you can be sure that it's because what he's repeating is part of, and a big part, of his main point. Today's message on the Sermon on the Plain is kind of like part two of the message that he gave the people in Nazareth that we find in Luke chapter 4. There, he drew the people of Nazareth's attention to the poor, the captive, the blind and the oppressed. Here, on the plain to a different audience, he draws their attention to the poor, the hungry, the sad, the hated and the excluded. Since I preached on the message in Nazareth from chapter 4, way back in uh, January 23rd, seems like a long time ago, the 23rd of January, um, each week since then, Marianne and I have pointed back to the section from Isaiah that Jesus reads to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. We've done this because this is part of Jesus' main point. So for me, it's no surprise that Jesus would have expanded developed and restated these points on the plain, on the mount, and probably in other places. 
As I started uh, digging into this passage in more detail this week, I was reminded that in my theological studies, I learnt that the hardest word to try and contextualise and make some sort of sense of how it fits in with the Bible and how it's interpreted is the word blessed. It has a greater diversity of meaning and interpretation than any other word in the Bible. So while I will come back to this idea of being blessed, I'm going to begin my dig into this passage by focusing on a different word, a word that doesn't appear in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is the word woe. The way that Jesus presents this powerful message would have been immediately resonating in the ears of those disciples who were familiar with Jewish scriptures. Because there are a number of examples in the, in the Jewish scriptures where, and one of those is actually set down in the lecture for today, a passage from the prophet Jeremiah, where blessings are contrasted with curses. The ones that most commonly connect with today's passage you can find in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. So your homework for this week is to read both of those chapters. But being cursed, I don't know about you, but for me, it's not something that I would normally associate with the way that God works with humanity, that God would curse us. But in Jesus' time, there was a strong understanding that you could, and people were, cursed by God. The way that you could determine if a person was cursed by God was often looking at their standing in life. So, if you were poor, hungry, sad, hated or excluded, if you were poor, captive, blind or oppressed, many in that community of the time would point to you and say, wonder what they did. Wonder what they didn't do. Or I wonder what their parents or their parents' parents or their parents' 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 parents did so that they ended up that way. You might recall uh, Jesus being asked this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus goes on to say neither. But if you read through those chapters, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, I can understand why people might have misinterpreted those words to come up with that view of what blessing and cursing meant. Because in those chapters, you see that there is a reward that's articulated for obedience to the law. But also there's penalties for disobedience. And so if you were rich, well-fed, happy and spoken of well in that world, people believed that you were blessed for an obedient life or an obedient life of someone who had gone before you. Jesus didn't come, as he said, to abolish the law. He came to fulfil it. But part of fulfilling the law was to correct some of the misapplications of that law and some of the imbalances those misapplications caused. And I think today is one of those examples where he totally flips the disciples' expectations and perspective 
on blessing. I think it's really, really important and significant that Jesus doesn't use the word cursed. Although when we're reading this passage, particularly if you've read those Old Testament passages, it's easy to read woe as cursed. But a little bit of um, detective work will very quickly find out uh, in English, woe doesn't mean cursed. And in Greek, woe didn't mean cursed. It was a word that, that we might use instead of saying alas. We still use the word woe in our vernacular in lots of different contexts. But as we read this passage, what I hear Jesus saying when he uses the word woe is a word of warning. Hold on. Woe. Pay attention. Woe. There's danger. Whoa. It's not as good as you think. You don't want to have your aspirational goals all tied up in these things. Whoa. Be on your guard. If you're rich, well-fed, happy, or spoken well of. In the same way that prioritising the poor, captive, blind and oppressed in Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth wasn't rejecting those people who weren't poor, who weren't captive, who weren't blind, who weren't oppressed. He wasn't rejecting the people in Nazareth. In the same way, he's not saying to those people on the plane that it's inherently bad to be rich, well-fed, happy, or spoken of well. But what he's saying, if you are enjoying that type of life right now, then you better be watching out because it all could change in a moment. And particularly with what he's saying is, if you are looking at that type of lifestyle and thinking that is a manifestation of God's blessing, then you've got it all wrong. And you're looking at the wrong people in the wrong way in the wrong places. Jesus is reminding his disciples that if you want to see where he's going to be at work, if you want to see what God's blessing is really like, then the evidence is always going to be way more visible when you're looking towards and spending time with the poor the hungry, the sad, the hated, and the excluded. I would like to think that looking back at a cultural landscape 2,000 years ago and then looking at our day and age, you would be able to see clear evidence of our evolution and development, particularly within the church, particularly on these types of issues. But as I did that, I couldn't help but see a similar distortion of the idea of being blessed in our world, in our time. The only difference is that today we put a hashtag in front of it. Isn't this idea of being hashtag blessed all about knowing that all is right in the world, well, all is right in your world? Hashtag blessed is about being happy knowing that all the comforts that you could want or need 
are at hand, that everybody is well and we're living our best lives. I can't help but wonder if some of our prayers over the last few years, as we've been crying out to God to normalise our world, whether some of those prayers have been driven from our desire to seek this type of hashtag blessed lifestyle. Because it's halted or it's stopped, or we can see others experiencing it and we want it for ourselves. Whether we have been caught up in this pursuit of happiness, comfort, and an ability to live our best life, or the best life that we can imagine for ourselves. I'm sure we don't want anybody else to be harmed in the process. But I do wonder whether some of those cries that I've made to God haven't been more about my well-being in that moment and less about what God wants to do in and through me. If that's the case and we have got it wrong and we have been looking in the wrong places at the wrong people, what has God got to say to us now? If woe is the warning that I suspect it is in this passage, the question I started to ask myself was, what is so dangerous about being rich, well-fed, happy and spoken of well? Is there a danger in complacency? Is there a danger in contentment or being too comfortable? Is there a danger in prioritising personal safety and security without being concerned for others? Is there a danger in developing a sense of entitlement or a lack of generosity or a blindness to those around us? I suspect it's maybe all of those things and probably more. But perhaps the biggest danger is what Jesus makes clear in this passage. That being rich, well-fed, happy and spoken of well is only ever temporal. You've heard the expression, he who dies or she who dies with the most toys wins. Well, riches, being well-fed, happy and spoken of well, only ever lasts until you die. And there's plenty of stories about people who try and pass on their inheritance to the next generation and that, that dries up as well. These things are only temporal. At some point in our life, we will find ourselves either literally or metaphorically poor, hungry, sad, hated or excluded. The desire for the influencer type of lifestyle that we see in our times seems to be fed by a relentless pursuit of a desire that the ultimate state of existence is to be rich, well-fed, happy and spoken of well. It's interesting to see how quickly influencers talk, uh, shift from being spoken of well to spoken not of very well at all. And it's in this type of pursuit that I think it risks integrity, well-being and it seems to cannibalise for the benefit of what is next, best, brightest and prettiest. If only there was another way. 
in last week's reading, Jesus took his friends off fishing, his friends who were actually professional fishermen. And he has the hide to tell them that they're doing it all wrong and his way is better. The result was they found and they caught so many fish. The Greek word so many, plethos, where we get the English word plethora, or plethora, depending on who your English teacher was, is the same Greek word we find in today's passage with the multitude of people, the plethos of people, who Jesus has tasked his disciples with these fishermen who are changing, who've pivoted their position from being fishermen to, to being catchers of people, disciples. And he's turning their attention to this plethos of people. And they're wondering, well, where do we start? Who are the best people that we could go to first? There's a heap of them out there. I've no doubt their first thought would have been to turn towards the influential, the rich and the respectable. And interestingly enough, one of the ways of interpreting the biblical word blessed is blessed means respectable and of value. And I'm pretty sure this is exactly what Jesus is meaning uh, with the Greek word makirioi in this passage. The ones that we should look to towards first, these disciples should look towards first, are not the ones that we might think of first. They're not the obvious choice. They're not the influential, the rich and the respectable of our society. In fact, those people, they need to pay extra attention because it could all come crumbling down. And those people have got a nasty habit of turning their lifestyle into their own God and find a relentless pursuit of this type of living at the expense of others and often at the expense of themselves. So where should these newly commissioned disciples look? What type of people should they be hanging around? Who are the ones who really do have value and are respectable? Where will they see Jesus working? Where will they experience the Holy Spirit's power? Well, Jesus is clear. The poor, the captive, the blind and the oppressed. Remember Nazareth? The poor, the hungry, the sad, the hated and excluded. Let me continue to remind you who you need to look at. Many of us at the moment might make some sort of connection or relation to one of those situations, poor, ha hungry, sad, hated or excluded, captive, blind or oppressed. We might look at our lives and, and feel ourselves feeling like that at the moment. I've heard um, New Testament scholar and retired Anglican bishop uh, Tom Wright say uh, this um, expression uh, a number of times. Um, I'm pretty sure it wasn't his originally, but uh, he's, he's said a number of times, it'll be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. When God's at work in those times of hardship, in those times of trial, 
we see the magnificence of humanity most fully revealed. And, identi- and our identity can be most completely formed. In my last church in Newcastle, um, there was a really wise parish councillor. I had lots of wise parish councillors in Newcastle and lots of wise parish councillors up here too. AGM's coming up, just letting you know if you want to be a wise parish councillor. Uh, we'd love to have you. But this particular um, uh, guy, uh, David, said one day at a parish council meeting, he said, identity is forged in battle. If you've never had to fight for anything, you've never, never really formed your identity. What I would add to his wisdom after reading through this passage again is that when we realise God is with us in our trials, in our struggles and in our battles, when we are aware that God is at work in the world, in the world's struggles, trials and battles, and in the lives of those who might be poor, captive, blind and oppressed, hated and excluded and hungry. When we become aware of all those things, then God begins to form our identity more clearly as a disciple. The most impactful influencer that I've ever experienced in my life is a disciple of Jesus. These influences inspire, console, give hope, encourage, call out, challenge, comfort, confront, disrupt, disturb, reassure and empower. I want to be like that. I wonder if you do as well. They do that as a disciple because they've been more than influenced. They have been blessed in the truest sense of the word by their relationship with Jesus. Not by earthly riches and rewards, not by the way that we measure success. But they have been blessed by an intimate relationship and a knowledge of Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. It might sound like a cheesy platitude, but we are blessed to be a blessing. But I wonder if that's how we actually live and how we think of being blessed. I have absolutely no doubt that my best sermons are my songs, mostly because they only go for three or four minutes. As the pandemic was at its confusing heights in 2020, I wrote these words while I was reflecting on Lamentations chapter 3. wrote, one thing I remember when I feel I can't hold on. One thing keeps me grounded while the battle rages on. When the world comes crashing down, only one thing still remains. When hope is lost and dreams are crushed, only your love stays the same. In the chorus I wrote, in the trials and in the battles, in the fires and in the floods, great is your faithfulness. I thank God for God's faithfulness. Thank God for humbling me to realise that it's actually not about me. I confess that I have prayed prayers 
for my own comfort and safety and security at the expense, or not at the expense, at, at, at the unawareness of others. Because I haven't liked what was going on around me. But I live in the confidence that God is forming me. God's not finished with that formation. And that in those struggles, even though they might seem insignificant when I look around my, myself, that identity is being forged. And as I look around, I pray, and I hope you are praying a similar prayer, that God might make you aware of those around us who are poor, who are captive, who are blind, who are oppressed, who are hungry, who are hated and excluded, that we might join with them in experiencing God's powerful work and identifying God at work in our lives. The way God works is that um, when Jackson asked me to get my songs together at the start of the week, I put that particular song as a song after the sermon. So uh, as I get my guitar around my neck and move things around, I wonder if uh, you join with me as we sing steadfast. Amen.